Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2113 of our trek to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages that I've delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapter 5-7. through I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you today. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Isaiah. And we do pray that these children's messages will help the children that are here and any that are watching online. We do appreciate those that are helping with the children's messages. When Paula read me what she was planning on speaking today, I thought, man, that sounds awful good. It covers just about everything I want to talk about, and she did it in two minutes. Instead of 25 minutes, I thought, man, there's something wrong here. (laughs) All right. We do thank you for everyone being here. We're excited as we look to the Lord again on the lessons he has to teach us. Today is the 11th and final message on the Sermon on the Mount covering Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And I just pray that you've enjoyed and learned from these passages as much as I have. I've really enjoyed studying for this and being able to bring God's word to you on a weekly basis. And today's our final message, and it is a Christian's amazement. Who is this radical teacher? And it's found on page 1506 in your pew Bible, right down at the bottom of the page. The last two verses of Matthew chapter 7, which is 28 and 29, and follow along with me. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Now many religious and even secular people are prepared to accept the Sermon on the Mount as self-contained truth and self-evident truth. They know that it included such well-known sayings as, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Love your enemies. No one can serve two masters. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. And do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. They say that these passages, in in these passages, that Jesus of Nazareth was a moral teacher and a very straightforward and best way to describe this. But as we've learned over the last 11 weeks, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, or much more than that, it is a manifesto of Christ to the citizens of God's kingdom. It is our marching orders. His teaching and his picture that he painted during these passages are of a Christian counterculture. And these are our commands to radical discipleship. What remains for us is now to consider this unique teacher himself. And we'll find it impossible to separate between the Jesus under the Sermon on the Mount and the Jesus that's found in the rest of the New Testament. Instead, the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the same supernatural, dogmatic, divine Jesus who is found everywhere else when he's mentioned in Scripture. So the main question is that the sermon forces on us is what, not what do we make of this teaching as much as who on earth is this radical teacher? The reaction to those who heard the sermon were that they were amazed at the authority of his teaching. And what struck his first hearers, those crowds and disciples that gathered with him on the, sur- on the mount, was the teacher's extraordinary authority. He did not hum and haw 
or hesitate like I do when I speak up here on Sunday mornings. He was neither tentative nor apologetic, nor again, on the other hand, was he ever bombastic or flamboyant. Instead, he was, had a quiet, unassuming assurance that he laid down the manifesto for the citizens of God's kingdom. By the end of Jesus' teaching, the crowds were amazed. And the Greek verb for this is a very strong one, and it means dumbfounded. Do you know what it means to be dumbfounded? It means eyes aglaze, mouth agaped, just going, now I can play that part pretty well, because I'm dumbfounded an awful lot. And that's what the crowd was when he finished giving the sermon. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded and thought, who is this radical teacher? Let us try to analyze the authority of Jesus as he was exposed on the Sermon on the Mount. On what was it grounded? What was Jesus' self-awareness that led him to speak in such a way that he did? What clues does the sermon itself give of how he understood his identity and his mission? We do not speak, seek some far-off answers to this question. Today, we'll explore a sevenfold authority of this radical teacher. John, I have an overhead, just one overhead today, but it contains the seven points that we want to cover in today's message. The first one is Jesus' authority as the teacher. The crowds were amazed, for he taught with absolute authority. Yes, Jesus presented himself first and foremost as a teacher, and he was amazed. He amazed the listeners by his substance, the quality, and the manner of his instructions. But of course, there were thousands of teachers in Israel that day, and many of them taught in the temple. Many of them were contemporaries. But what was so special about the teaching of Jesus? He somehow assumed the right to teach the absolute truth. He was a Jew, but his message was not Jewish. He was interpreting Moses' law, but in such a way that it showed God's law. What he had to say was not limited to particular people, the nation of Israel or the Jews, God's chosen people, and it wasn't restricted to a certain place, such as Israel or Palestine. Being absolute, his message was universal for all people of all time, of all nations. And he spoke with one who knew what he was talking about. He knew who would be the greatest in God's kingdom and who would be the least, who would be blessed in God's sight and who was not, which way led to life and which way led to destruction. With a complete self-confidence, he declared who would inherit the kingdom of heaven and who would inherit the earth, who would obtain mercy and see God and be fit to call, be called God's children. But how could he be so sure? His hearers naturally compared and contrasted him with many other teachers that they were familiar with, especially the scribes of the day that taught in the temple and the synagogues. What struck them most was that he taught with absolute authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. The scribes claimed no authority of their own. Instead, they conceived their duties in terms of faithfulness 
to the traditions that they received. So they researched the commentaries of their day, searching for examples, claiming the support of famous names among the rabbis. Their only authority lay in the sources which they quoted themselves. On the other hand, Jesus had not received any type of scribal education. He outraged the establishment by sweeping away the traditions of the elders. He had no particular reverence for social traditions, and he spoke with the freshness of his own, which captivated some while infuriated others. He did not teach like the scribes, and he also did not teach like the Old Testament prophets either. Jesus instead insisted that his words were God's words. And yet there was a difference. The prophets introduced their oracles with phrases like, listen to what God says. Jesus never used this phrase, but instead he would emphatically say, I tell you the truth, or, but I say to you. Thus daring to speak in the name and authority, which he knew was identical to the Father's authority. Not that he was contradicting Moses, Moses and his teaching, but as we've seen, he contradicted the scribal confusion of Moses' teaching. Yet in doing this, Jesus challenged the centuries of inherited traditions and claimed to replace it with his own accurate, authoritative interpretation of God's law. Which takes us to the next point, Jesus' authority as the Christ. There is evidence in the Sermon on the Mount and many other parts of his teaching that Jesus knew why he had come into the world and what his mission was. If you remember back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. The claims sound innocent enough until we reflect on the real implications of what Christ was saying here. What Jesus is asserting that all the predictions of both the laws and the prophets found their fulfillment in him. Jesus did not think of himself as another prophet or even the greatest of all prophets, but rather he was the fulfillment of all prophecy. The belief that the days of expectations on when the Messiah was to come are now ushered, ushered in in this time of completion, and this was deeply embedded in the consciousness of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, there were five direct references to God's kingdom. They imply that Jesus was inaugurating this kingdom of God. It was the beginning of the restoration of Eden, but not as a garden in just a small portion of the earth, but Eden that would encompass the entire world by the coming of God's kingdom. And something to note, as citizens of God's kingdom, we are here to build up that kingdom which will ultimately be restored on the second coming of Christ when he converts the entire world into a global Eden. Jesus knew himself to be the Christ, God's Messiah of the Old Testament expectation. Which takes us to the third point, Jesus' authority as the Lord. Now, the flexibility of the Greek word Lord must indeed be recognized here. Not every instance of its use implied a consciousness of divine authority. Not everyone who addressed Jesus as Lord chose to name it as an equivalency of his deity. 
It was more of a polite form to address a person, similar to what we say, sir, when you would say, yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir. That is the Greek for, word for Lord that's translated Lord in many of the passages. Only in the context can, we help, can help us to judge the dominion and the deity that might include the word Lord. Take for the example the section we taught last week on the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus referred to people who addressed him as Lord, Lord. He was not complaining about the ch title that they chose, for he accepted it as an appropriate term for his divinity. His point was that they were using it glibly and were not investing in its true meaning. He was not just sir to be respected, he was Lord to be obeyed. Thus Jesus saw himself more than a teacher, giving advice which people might or might not heed at their discretion. He was using their master, issuing commands, expecting obedience, and warning them that their eternal welfare was at stake. Clearly, all of this, Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. His expectation was not just that they would absorb his teaching, but he wanted them to be wholly devoted to him personally. The acceptance of this devotion, no doubt, is why he was not content with simply being referred to as rabbi. For he was the teacher and Lord. And that takes us one more step to Jesus' authority as the Savior. It is plain in the sermon that Jesus knew the way of salvation and taught it. He was able to be, declare who would be blessed and who would not. Jesus could point to the narrow gate, gate which leads to the hard way, which finally leads to eternal life. He was clear which house would survive the storms and which houses would be destroyed. But if we penetrate deeply into this message, we find that he not only taught salvation, he granted salvation to those who were listening to him. Thus, the beatitude, in the beatitude, he appears in the role as one who distributes the blessings and gives the kingdom of God. Jesus considered his hearers, this little group of peasants that sat with him on that mountainside, he considered them the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But how could they possibly have a restraining and an enlightening influence in the world? Only through recognizing that they followed Jesus. And that takes us to point number five, Jesus' authority as the judge. The whole Sermon on the Mount was preached against the subdued background of the coming judgment day. Nevertheless, Jesus knew it was a reality and desired that reality to be firmly planted in the minds of his followers. So he declared the conditions of, the self, of salvation and warned against the causes of destruction. If you remember last week, the graphic portrayal of the two different ways and the two different destinations, Christ was saying, these are the choices. You have one choice, this way, the wide way, or the narrow way. Jesus claimed that he would be judge. Three times he used his personal the pro personal pronouns I and me. First, he would be the judge. 
hearing the evidence and passing the sentence. In Matthew 7, 23, he says, but I, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Secondly, he would himself be the criteria for judgment. People will bring forward their evidence and they say, well, I used your name in my ministry. But God will say, I never knew you. Because that proclamation wasn't based on their lordship, the lordship of Christ. And it wasn't evidence that could be submitted in God's court. The destiny of human beings will depend not on their knowledge of him or the use of his name, but on their knowledge of him personally, not, for serv not service for Christ, but a relationship with Christ will be the issue. Thirdly, the sentence he pronounced will also concern him. He says, get away from me, you who break God's laws. No worse fate could be envisioned in the mind of Christ as he implied that eternal separation from himself. Jesus is the only person who is qualified to be the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. And that takes us to our sixth point, Jesus' authority as the Son of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a comprehensive doctrine of God. He is the creator, the living God of the natural order, who gives sunshine and rain. He supplies food for the birds, clothing for the flowers, and human beings, he supplies our life necessities. Jesus is also the king whose righteousness and saving rule permeates the very human lives to who he taught. And above all, and again through Jesus, we have access to the Father. We can boldly go before God's throne because we go through Jesus Christ. In all these sayings, Jesus called God your Father. And one, then again, he once referred to him as the will of my Father. And he gave his father, far, followers the privilege of addressing God in the same intimate phrase, Abba, Father. This concept was later expressed in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, where he says, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal. And this takes us to our final point, is the authority of Jesus as God. Whenever we attempt to understand the divine nature of Jesus as God, it's much more than we can comprehend. It's one of those dumbfounded moments, again, where we just, we just can't grasp it. We can't take it in. The fact that Jesus knew God as my Father is clear, and he knew that his sonship was unique, like no other sonship. But we now have to take that one further hesitating step. There is evidence that he thought himself to be on the same level with God, even one with God. It is not that he ever said this in so many words in the Sermon on the Mount, but he claimed to exercise divine privileges, and his way of speaking of himself implied it. Three examples are given about how he thought himself as one with God. The first example is in the final beatitude. Now, if you remember back, and this was, I think, our second lesson 
in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 about the Beatitudes. The first eight of the Beatitudes are generalizations in the third person. It says, blessed are they. In contrast, the ninth Beatitude changes that into a second person as Jesus addressed his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, follow me on this. It says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Then he goes on to say, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. In this analogy, the prophets about their prophets is actually amazing when you think about it. If Jesus compares his disciples to God's prophets, he's declaring himself or comparing himself to be equal with God. Second, since Jesus regarded obeying him as Lord as doing the Father's will, and those two being equivalent, he was putting himself on level with God. And thirdly, it comes to the verse about the day of judgment, which we've already talked about. Everyone knew that God was a judge. There was no question about that. God was judge. And Jesus knew this. But he also knew that the people would appeal to him as their savior on the last day and that he would have the responsibility to pass sentences onto them. In saying so, he equated himself with being very, the very God. So here's the radical teacher. He taught with absolute authority, for quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. He teaches with the authority of God and lays down the very law of God. He expects people to build the house of their lives based on his word, and he adds that those who do so will be wise and safe. He says that he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He is both the Lord to be obeyed and the Savior who bestows blessings on us. He casts himself as a central role in the Judgment Day drama. He speaks of God as his Father in a unique sense and finally implies that what he does, God does. And what the people do to him, they are doing to God. And we, we cannot escape the implications of all of this, the claims that Jesus was indeed put forth so naturally, so modestly, so indirectly, that many people, even those that were on the, the mount during the sermon, didn't even notice them. But there they are. And we cannot ignore this powerful message and the authority that Christ has and still retain our integrity. So the only alternative for us is to take Jesus at his word, his claim at their face value. In this case, we must respond to the Sermon on the Mount with deadly seriousness. For here is the picture of God's alternate society. And I'll take you back 11 weeks as we look at God's world and he says, the world's upside down. The teaching of the secular world is not my kingdom. He says, you are salt and you are light. And because of your following my teachings, we'll turn the world right, back, right side up as we form and build his kingdom. 
So from the time of Christ, the purpose of us as believers, as God's citizens of his kingdom, is to turn the world right side up, which will ultimately culminate in the Garden of Eden being restored to the entire world. That is our charge. These are the standards, the values, and the priorities of the kingdom of God. When we, as citizens of God's kingdom, if we become indistinguishable from the world, then we've lost our saltiness and our light is extinguished. Instead, we need to be evidence of God's new society that's already seen the fruits of the joys and the power of the age to come. Yes, Eden won't be fully restored until Christ's second coming. But between now and then, whether it's a thousand years from now or a hundred thousand years from now or tomorrow, we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Only when the Christian community lives by Christ's manifesto will the world be attracted to him and God be glorified. So when Jesus calls us to himself, it is to that which he calls us to be that salt of the world, the light of the world. For Jesus is the Lord of the Christian counterculture. And as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount this week, next week we'll start a new series. And we're going to switch from the radical teacher to what it takes for each of us to be a radical disciple. I hope you'll join us during the month of August We'll be covering that topic. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us each day. We thank you that what we've learned from this sermon that you preached on the Mount 2,000 years ago is just as applicable, if not more so, today than it ever was. As we build your kingdom as citizens of your kingdom, we pray that we'll be salt to the earth and the light of the world. We pray that our impact will influence those to join as citizens of God's kingdom. Help us each day to do so, not out of piety, but out of love for one another, Father. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.